This is Leadership Letters, the podcast reflecting on and discussing all things leadership. Coming up... I'm still just a teacher. Yeah, my title's a CEO. You practice in sports, so why wouldn't you practice in the boardroom? I'm really struck by how important the work of understanding the individuals is. It was really hard. I had people phoning me telling me to back down because my career would be over. You ensured the world saw what women could achieve on the highest stage equally and slam sexism right in its face. And I always had a joke that whenever I went to the toilet, I came back and I had another voluntary role. So beware (laughs) of going to the toilet and getting voluntary roles. I'm Lizzie Bentley Bowers. And as our regular listeners will know, this podcast is a place for leaders to hear and share experiences, to talk about who and what has inspired and driven them and how they go about the work of being a leader. And a reminder that we now have follow-up podcasts in the form of Towards Leadership, where as a result of what our leaders have shared, we share more food for thought, ideas, inspiration, and most importantly, tools and resources to help you apply and navigate all that you hear and all that leadership entails. Our guest today has held a number of senior roles at Sport England. Internationally, she's held roles on the International Volleyball Federation World Ethics Panel, the European Volleyball Credentials Panel, as well as being a director of the British Olympic Association. She's currently a technical director for International Volleyball and is a member of the International Basketball Federation Governance Commission. She has previously been CEO at Volleyball England and then British Basketball in 2016. Our guest has also held a number of non-executive roles at Swim England, the Institute of Swimming, and in 2018 was ranked number 12 in the top 100 executive LGBTQ plus allies by FT Outstanding, and has also become an ambassador for Women on Boards UK. With such an extraordinary CV and so much leadership experience to dive into, we're delighted to welcome the CEO of the Sport and Recreation Alliance, Lisa Wainwright, to the Leadership Letters podcast. Thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us. Not at all. Delighted to be here, Lizzie. So let's go straight in with the first question I always ask. When you first realised that leadership was a thing, that there were people who had these roles known as leaders, and what, if any, influence those first impressions of leadership still have on you? It was a really tough one, you know, in terms of going back to when I, I guess I looked up to people. I think that's how I determined leadership when I was younger. I I have an older brother called Kevin, he's four years older, and I always wanted to play with his friends because they were four years older. So I think my first kind of experience of looking up to some people like Susan Basford, Karen Hackett and Jane Smart, people you won't know, but was because they were older, I admired them and wanted to be older and more mature. But I think from a leadership perspective, the person that probably had the most impact on me was in secondary school, was my PE teacher, as I'm sure many people would say in sport, uh, Pat Green. And she just, she found a way to motivate me to do my studies. I wasn't particularly clever in any way, but she found a way to do my studies by motivating me through doing athletics and netball. And when you talk about Pat and what she saw in you, and I think, I mean, so interesting, I think you're right. So many of our guests have referred to teachers as their first experiences of or thoughts around leadership. And often it's about those teachers recognising who they are beyond what a quite narrow curriculum measures. How does that now influence the way that you work as a leader? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm a trained teacher following her inspiration. I then trained to be a physical education teacher at Warwick University, and that's a long time ago. But it was all about understand, uh, taking a holistic approach to people. 
And we now talk about holistic approach to coaching, which makes me giggle because that's kind of 30 years on. But a, a person is a person in so many different ways and you shouldn't judge what is just in front of you. So I think what Pat saw was, you know, somebody from quite a poor background. We didn't have a car. Um, we hadn't got a, you know, a clever family as such. Yet she took time out to this is a long time ago to drive to my house pick me up and drive to Leeds which is a good hour away from the school so I could get the next level of netball then drive me home that evening and then go back to her own home so she could she could definitely see something else in me and she went that extra mile I'm still just a teacher yeah my title is a CEO but all I try to do is I try and help people develop themselves through the the medium of sport which is a fantastic gift if you can help somebody through that um, and that's all I'm doing. I'm just using those holistic skills. Listening to people, I guess, is the key thing. So much of what you've described there in terms of those holistic skills, I think often as, as leaders, we're so used to using and exercising those skills that we have. We almost forget to name them as skills. We almost forget to narrow them down into sort of specific threads that we can pull on and listening definitely being one. When you talk about holistic skills, what do you mean by that? And how might somebody work on those skills? You know, lots of people, I just said about being a CEO, lots of people judge you for lots of things, whether you're a woman, whether you're black, whether you've got degrees, whether you're rich or poor. And, and I think in terms of holistically looking and listening with somebody is understanding the different layers to somebody. And it's a little bit like the, when you're asking somebody, how are you? You don't just ask, how are you? Because everybody will say, oh, I'm OK, I'm good, which is what I've just done to you. Mm. And if you ask it three times, you might get deeper into I had a shit holiday, actually. It rained all week. I snapped my knee and the kids were miserable. But we rarely say that unless we really get asked in an environment that you've created some trust between you and the individual and you reciprocate. So you show vulnerability, people will share vulnerability back. And actually that gets a greater depth to understanding the holistic person because we're all not just working at you know the spot recreation lands. We have parents that might need to be looked after. We might have kids, we might have dogs, we might have other other parts of our lives that we're volunteering in so it's really important in that holistic approach to understand that my view is everybody comes to work to do a great job and a leader's job is to enable that person to be great even on the shit days when you get up and everything's gone wrong and actually that's fine because these things happen um, and in our industry there's not a huge amount that's critical we're not the police we're not the, the you know the armed service and things so that holistic approach is understanding that people will have different challenges at different times in their lives. And you might be able to help them. You might not. You might be able to signpost to other people because you won't always have the right skills nor knowledge to help them. And it's something that is so easy to lose, isn't it? That And I, and I agree with you completely. Nobody gets out of bed and comes to work with an intention of either doing a bad job or having a bad day. And when we are perhaps sorting out a mess that somebody else has made or where there's tension in a relationship, it's one of the first things I think that we can forget or we certainly lose our connection to that. But if that ever happens to you or you see that happening around you, how do you help people or how do you help yourself to restore that connection to actively remember that someone is doing their best, even if their best isn't what's ideal for this moment? Somebody taught me about the, the kind of stomach feeling. You know, when you sat in a meeting and somebody says something and your stomach goes, that happened a lot to me when I was younger. And somebody said, just feel the stomach and then stop. Don't say a bloody word. Because the first thing that would come out of my mouth is, I can't believe you've not done that or something of that tone, a blame response. If you just stop, you feel that reaction, immediately go, 
how can I help rather than how can I blame? And, and it's a, it's a, something that you have to instill in yourself to that physical reaction. So that's kind of what I try and do. Um, it doesn't always work. Sometimes I'm not having a good day and it will react. But I hope the relationship I have with people that I work around and support understand that I will tell them I'm having an absolutely appalling day and they'll be fine. They'll understand that Lisa's going to be grumpy and we'll just make a coffee um, because, you know, we're all human. So I think if you are seeing that behaviour from other people, you have to call it out. So if I'm sat in a boardroom and a board member is is inappropriately challenging somebody and by inappropriately, I, they haven't got the facts, they haven't got the right information in front of them. They're just giving opinion, opinion, opinion. Um, it, it's okay to call it out, to say, can you give me the evidence to to go through why you give this opinion, blah, blah, blah. So a number of times I say I've had to call certain behaviours out um, because I've felt that feeling. And it's, it's easy to feel it and not say a word. And it's easy to feel it and react. So I've tried to learn not to react unless it's affecting somebody else. And if it's affecting somebody else, um then I've learned to call it out and sometimes with big risks um because people don't like being called out I love what you said there about that space between reacting and also taking so long to react that we actually end up saying nothing which often is not right either and doing something from a calm sort of curious place I mean it's useful that I'm over 50 and a gone through the menopause so I can be the bumbling oh just give me a second to think about this and then give you time to catch up it's the classic you know MP when they say that's a really good question you've asked me there which gives them thinking time you could be in a meeting for an hour there's no reason why at the end of the meeting you you don't conclude another business and say I felt really uncomfortable at this point I just want to capture how I felt uncomfortable did anybody else feel it and that's a really nice way to give people time to talk about whatever the issue was and it might have just been you that was, was feeling it it might be others as well, but it opens up the door for others to be honest. And if when you've, you've talked already about trust, you've talked about relationship, you've talked about how valuable openness is, transparency, you know, this is how I'm doing today versus how you're doing. Having caught the physical cue and made the observation and offered the feedback, if what you then get back, though, is someone else not catching their physical cue and a, and a defensive reaction, how do you manage that? What what tips would you give to people, you know, if you're calmness isn't being received and played back to you if you're getting something else back the first thing is you need to be courageous to speak up and leaders need to be courageous there's different ways of speaking up um many a time I've asked for a coffee break or you know again 50 plus I need a toilet break which gives me time to get out of the room speak to somebody privately so you don't always need to do it publicly and privately and say actually Lizzie that came out really wrong did you mean it that way um but what I would have probably have done, and again, this is prep before meetings, is understand the motivations of the individuals. You would do the prep before the meeting. So if something sidelines you, there's something gone on that's not been planned in the background. So you could have a natural break. You could ask for a break. Celia Brackenridge, Professor Celia Brackenridge, who, who some of your listeners might, might know, bless her, talked to me about the broken record. She says, you will say some things that sometimes that nobody will listen to. Just keep the broken record going. Con- continually say it. Um, and what I've found particularly around board tables, is there's very few instances where I've said something and, and everybody's gone mm, completely bonkers. Most have gone, actually, I, I agree, and shyly started to, to follow where, where you've been going. Um, I guess the biggest thing I've, I've used and continue to use is humour. A few people mm-hmm. say I'm a bit like Victoria Woods because it, it's, 
you know, if, if you fight somebody, if you say why to somebody, they'll want to fight you back. If I ask you, well, why did you say that, Lizzie? You go, mm -hmm. but if I said, you know, can you explain when you went, when you went through that or what you said, etc., you'd have a, I'd have a different response. So I've kind of used humour to to make a really silly point to bring out the serious point. You know, they say a, a joke is always said with purpose. Um, so I think in one meeting I said somebody was, um, as I'd call it, peacocking, showing off. And I just said, uh, well, I'm delighted to hear that because I've had a date with uh, David Beckham and, and I've had dinner privately with the Queen and she's my best friend, which is ridiculous because I've not had a date with David Beckham and I'm not a private dinner with the Queen. But I made it so stupid that he just said to that person, everybody's unique. You don't need to show off that you've had dinner with so-and-so and so-and-so, actually. Let's level the playing field in this meeting. And it kind of, it just made it humorous, but I'd point to it. It, it totally does. And I and I loved also in that first example you gave that even if you're not making a, a full joke, as it were, there is something about the lightness of tone and the intonation in which you deliver the question, you know, shifts it completely from being a starting point for a conflict and the starting point for a conversation. Yeah. And it's kind of a lot of times as a woman and a young woman in leadership positions, I've had um, sadly some men um, when you have a comment and kind of it's dismissed and then a guy will repeat it. And I've just gone back and said, thank you, Philip, for repeating what I've just said. I'm delighted that you highlighted what I said. So it's tongue in cheek, but it makes a point and it stops that behaviour. And that ha happened quite a lot internationally, actually. I haven't necessarily had that in, in, uh, in domestically. I can feel the heads of our listeners who've experienced that nodding, as, as you say it. And actually, it reminds me about something you said about repetition. I think we don't talk about repetition enough. There can be a fear around repetition that will either sound like we don't know what we're talking about or that you know, literally that we're repeating ourselves. And actually, in so many instances, whether it's calling someone out, whether it's being clear on the vision and where we're headed, whether it's um, making a point land, you know, repetition is a, is a skill worth embracing. And we tend to think of it as something we shouldn't, in inverted commas, do. Completely, but the real art is is not you being repetitive. But I'll do it modern day. I would have I would have said on a cassette. You've then got twenty five cassette recorders repeating what you've said. In modern day, you've got a whole Spotify album of people in your network because you've built a relationship across the network that are saying, ah, "Lizzie's fabulous, Lizzie's fabulous, Lizzie's fabulous," and everybody's saying Lizzie's fabulous. That's really the art for me of how you are. You have the courage to challenge, and then you take people with you on that journey to challenge. So there's a collective around it. And that's you know, the end of that is kind of collaborating together. But the art of it is building the relationships with people, having that vision in the first place, having the values around that vision and then driving it. And if somebody tries to do the opposite to that, um, then that's where you challenge it. And can you tell us more, Lisa, about the bringing people with you? How do you bring people with you to a place of advocacy and repeating your words? It's really hard. And I think one of the things you asked me to think about was around, you know, memorable moments when you've been in leadership positions. And I'll link it back to your question. But I suddenly became the captain of the netball team. I don't know how. And then I became captain of the rounders team. And then I was selected for FISA student rep when I was 19. And I seemed to be falling into leadership roles without knowing it or being asked to do it. And I always had a joke that whenever I went to the toilet, I came back and I had another voluntary role. So beware <laughs> of going to the toilet and getting voluntary roles. Um, but coming back to advocacy and um, taking people with you, for me, what I've tried to do is, is understand people's motivations, because if you can help that person to 
to deliver what they're really interested in, whether it's about helping others, whether it's about raising money, whether it's about equality, whatever motivates them, you have to find a way through the vision that you're driving ties in to their motivations. But doing an analysis of everyone you meet and then selling with different tools to that individual. But you have to have that compelling vision in the first place. So when I let the, the bid for the International Working Group for Women in Sport, it, the vision was very strong. We wanted to bring this home, the Secretariat and Conference, very compelling vision about um, empowering women and girls in sport. Um, and all I had to find was the right group of people that could drive that with me. And then different elements, whether it be an economic argument, an equality argument, or bringing it home, uh, you know, a, a soft power argument. So, so that was how I did it. But what's really important is you always circle back. So I'm not hierarchical in how I operate. I don't care about titles. I genuinely don't. I care about people. I'm a people first leader. And I always try and involve people from completely different levels to myself in anything that I do. Because I don't want it to be people that are just like me. And it's easy to do people just like me because I've been in the sector for a long time. And and that's, I think, in terms of advocacy, if you can get people that are not like you understanding why you're trying to make a change or a cultural change or whatever it might be, you'll go further and they will be empowered themselves to be brave enough and courageous enough to do that themselves. So I think there's having the right vision. It's understanding the motivations you need to continue to communicate and communicate with different tools in different ways, depending on the individual. And the more, in my view, the more creative you can be, the more compelling that argument will be. And, and celebrating. We, we often forget in the sector to celebrate. Actually, we've always got more people to get active. We've always got more coaches to train. We've always got a safeguarding issue. We've got anti-doping. It, it's quite complex. And we, we don't necessarily celebrate how brilliant our sector is. Um, in relation to the amount of volunteers and, and community action that, that the sector creates. So I think understanding motivations, having a compelling vision and being creative with that vision and remembering to celebrate along the way. I'm really struck by how important the work of understanding the individuals around you is and how once you are leading and managing at any level, there will be consistent messages, but that doesn't mean that you have to deliver them or that you're going to be effective by delivering them the same way everywhere that you deliver them. Com completely. You know, it's a bit like working in kindergarten. <laughs> Every yeah. child that comes up to you will expect a different response and you've just got to expect that in a workplace. And, and that's what a great workplace is, is, is embracing difference. Um, and actually, we, we employed three new members of staff during COVID, so I hadn't met them, which for me is a real challenge because I, I try to feel them, not, not touch them, feel them, but sense them. And it was really hard because we brought three new members of staff in and it was a challenging time with COVID, didn't get to know them particularly well. And I brought somebody in who deliberately to be a disruptor in, in the workplace. Um, and it was, it was hugely challenging because our values were so different. And it took a lot of time to embed that team. And actually, it's a brilliant team now within the within the alliance. But it would have been very easy to just say, actually, no, I can't get on with you. You're not for me. What I accepted was I brought that person in deliberately to disrupt because we'd got too comfortable in a certain area. And, and you need people to understand that because it's very easy when you're changing something to pick on the person that's doing the change rather than understanding that that's required. I mean, we often see that in the very high profile sport that we see is that if something doesn't work quickly, it gets changed. And I think that's such a powerful point you're making that there needs to be an understanding of the fact that some things take time. Completely. And if 
if you want a static business, then that's fine. But if you want a business to grow um, and to develop, then you need a workforce and people working around you that continue to challenge. And, and as leader, that should be a, an absolute. You are learning constantly. And I think, you know, that self-improvement, I improve through employing people. If you looked at my directors at the Alliance, they're far stronger at their areas, technical areas, than I will ever be. Um, and people often say, you know, I worked at... Um, volleyball I was chief executive volleyball England I didn't know anything about volleyball and then I became chief executive basketball and I mean don't get me wrong I played volleyball and played basketball I don't know the rules or anything else um, but I didn't need to because at both sports there were people who believe you me know the technical side of volleyball and basketball what I needed to do is was give them that vision that strategy and and enable us to get funding to to deliver the sport um, but that's quite a vulnerable place I found it easy because it meant I couldn't get involved in technical debates it's very easy to, you know, thousands of members would want to have an argument with you because um, you're the boss of the organisation. A bit like you would with the Prime Minister, everything's wrong, but the Prime Minister does. And that's not a political point. It's just when you're at the top, everything's wrong. Um, and I could say, actually, you're right, because I don't know the answer to that, but I'll give you my head coach who will answer. And people don't quite know what to do when a chief exec says that, that I don't know. And I'm, I'm probably renowned for saying, actually, I don't know, but I know somebody who does. Three very important words, I don't know. <laughs> I was really struck, actually, Lisa, when I was looking at your background and your bios, and not only by the range of leadership roles you've held, but just how many leaders in so many different ways you will have worked with, encountered. Who of those leaders has inspired you? Or whose leadership have you come across and thought, ah, oh, do you know what, actually... I'm, I'm going to take a bit of that and grow it for myself. It's about the different skills of a leader. So I can't, I, I, I was set thinking, thinking, right, who do I admire? Who do I admire? And I admire people for different reasons. So mm. I mentioned Professor Celia Brackenridge, who, who is a staunch advocate for child protection um, and international lacrosse player, et cetera. And her courage was the one thing that I absolutely admired because she did not stop her whole life, her 67 years, she was focused on equality. Um, so she she would be one. Richard Callicott, who was my president ch chairman, uh, although attached president at Volleyball England, he was phenomenal in the way he nudged me as someone not from a sport. He put me into every possible environment to develop me without me really knowing and nudged me, even though it was his sport, he, he got me onto committees because he knew I got the skills to be on the committees. For me, that was the his understanding of it doesn't always have to be him. And I, and I hear a theme of people seeing potential in you at every stage of your career and saying, hey, I know you can do this. Go do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's really hard because I don't really like I like delivering the outcomes. And it's not mm. about me. It's about the outcomes. My goodness. So much to get our teeth into from everything that you've been saying. Um, but we have a letter. So can I ask you to tell us who you wrote to and why? And then we'd love to hear your leadership letter. It took me quite a while to think about this. One, because I'm not very good at writing. And two, I don't particularly read very well. I'm, I'm dyslexic. So I the notes about writing letters. Like, I don't want to do that. Stop picking on me. But anyway, I spent some time thinking about who who do I really think has been a, a, a huge game changer. And I came to uh, Billie Jean King. Dear Billie Jean King, I wanted to write to you as someone I have always admired for the sheer personal sacrifices you've made to improve gender equality and fight for social justice. 
I don't have a tennis background, so I've watched very few of your matches, but I'm aware so much of your courage, both on and off the court. When I was but three years old in front of 90 million worldwide viewers, you made a mark, not just on tennis or just in sport, but on a far wider global scale. In my view, never matched. Through the battle of the sexes, you shone a light on the possible by placing absolutely everything on the line. You ensured the world saw what women could achieve on the highest stage, equally, and slammed sexism right in its face. Your focus, your determination and your resilience are the foundations of exceptional leadership, which you exude. Your win over Bobby Riggs led the way for so, so many to follow, to flourish and to be inspired to dream. I admire the way you have led your life with integrity, with positivity and humility. Your personal sacrifice in not coming out to your parents until your 50s with the added turmoil this must, must have created. But like a swan, you carried on regardless, decisive and determined always for the greater good. The gender equality movement is far greater with you in it and women's rights in sport far better than we were. Today, some 50 years later from the battle, you continue to battle, to celebrate and live your life now as authentic you. There are many of us who can do this from the path you paved many years ago. Thank you for being you. Thank you for being brave, for listening, for taking risks most would never consider. God bless, Lisa. What a fabulous letter. Gosh, that got me in the feels, that one, Lisa. <laughs> Bless you. Thank you. It's it's with real heart it is written. Uh, you know, what shines through that letter is your admiration of courage and that courage isn't, is rarely actually something that you do once. I think we tend to think of courage as, those, you know, the, as, a, as a big moment of battle, but actually courage is often keeping going sometimes for years and years and years. And I, and I really hear that in your letter and in much of what you've said today. It kind of brings it home. Um, one of the toughest things I had to do was I was asked to be chief exec of British basketball who had no money and no staff, but had entered eight teams into international competition. And if you withdraw, you get fined and then suspended from international sport, all teams. So pretty stupid to accept the job of chief exec, quite frankly. But the sport has so much to give to so many people and although my background is netball athletics I know basketball can reach so many different communities at a very different level so I took on the role I joke but it did it nearly killed me that was very very like again I was got cancer at the end of it and I, I'm sure it was due to the stress but it meant it meant me looking back at the sector and saying you know I've been in this sector for about 25 years at that point and saying that we were wrong the decisions that all the different organisations had taken were wrong and they were biased. And I went through all the funding that had been given to different sports and the, the demographics of the different sports, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I was going against really close friends. I was going against the organisations that supported me and may well employ me in the future. I also went, you know, it, it, against the government in terms of their policy. It was really hard. I had people phoning me, telling me to back down because my career would be over. These are these are senior people in sport saying, stop now and I said well I'd rather not work in the sector if this is what it is so I'm carrying on and uh, it was really hard a lot of people turned their back on me and you know what I didn't care I care about the young kiddie in Barkin who has limited opportunities but through sport can have better life and I just had to keep that at my heart so and that was the courage I saw in, in Billie Jean King. There was so many, I mean, the risks that she took, mine are no risk. I was two years of hell, quite frankly, but hers has been a lifetime. And a lifetime of 
not being herself. I'm lucky I'm out, I'm a lesbian and I'm out and very supported in that. She wasn't. She had to, you know, hide and would probably have been petrified of that news hitting the press, of that coming out at that period. So that's why I admire her so much. I'm really struck as you're sharing that, Lisa, not only by your courage. Well, I'll be honest about what I was going to ask you and what I'm actually going to ask you. So what I was going to then ask you was a, was something about how as leaders we can cultivate our own courage, how we can think about. And I think these are important questions. But I'm also curious, I think, about the people surrounding somebody who is having to be continually courageous. What advice would you give to the people who are surrounding a leader who they are seeing has to be continually courageous? Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I was the spearhead of it, but I had um, a number of board members who were helping me in the background, particularly on the messaging, and I had Martin Lindsay has been with me for the last 16, 17 years and, and followed me, he's my number two, he's actually my number one, he's the chief exec, not me, he runs the organisations. Um, so you need people that you trust around you, and again, so long as you have a collective belief in what you're trying to deliver, what I'd say is when you are in those tough times, it's, it's similar to a whistleblower. When a whistleblower blows, lots of people kind of talk about it in the background, but rarely stands up and says, I agree with, you know, so-and-so. It's the same when you're having to continually show courage. Actually, it's the ones that say, no, I agree with Lisa. This policy is wrong. And I was part of the system and I agree with her. We're wrong and we need to relook at it. There were only a handful of those, but as they started to understand the tide was changing, lots more people jump on the bus and then the bus goes faster and policy changes and funding comes out. But one of the things I was lucky enough to, to find earlier on in McCree was uh, Dr. Zella King, and she has something called a personal boardroom. What it is, it's a tool that gets you to think about the different people that you need in your personal boardroom at different times. And it's a phenomenal tool. I use it all the time. So you talk about people surrounding me. It's making sure that that personal boardroom is there for the high times, the low times, the courageous times, the depressing times, the celebrated times when you're getting too cocky and they bring you back down to, to ground level or whatever it might be. So for me, the people surrounding is being honest that this is tough. At no point at basketball did I say we were going to win. It was going to be easy. I explained this was a really tough thing for everybody to face. And I would do my absolute utmost to ensure that people understood that the system wasn't fair. That's that's all I tried to do. Um, and the community, thankfully, understood that. So, for example, I have somebody who who role plays me. So if I'm, if I'm worried about a scenario I'm moving into. So, you know, I got called in to see the sports minister who was going to give me a grilling. And she promptly did, Tracy Crouch. But I'd managed to get the International Federation to be in the room. So she couldn't give me a proper grilling because the International Federation was there. But prior to going into the meeting, I'd gone to um, one of my mentors, Simon, and he sat me around the board table and he pretended to be Tracy Crouch. So role playing a scenario. So you you practice in sport. So why wouldn't you practice in the boardroom? It's, it's a really simple thing. We talk about that a lot here, Lisa. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So so that's some of the things that they have had to do. And and I I just think the main thing with the people surrounding that you asked about is, again, being honest. Some days during that two-year period of basketball, I couldn't get out of bed. I was so low. I had such low mood, uh, maybe depression. Um, and and the team galvanised around me and, and carried on. And then when I got enough energy, I came back and we came out fighting again. But it, it's having your, your people on your sub-bench that without asking them to step up, they do. And they are more than willing to. And you've developed them to a stage that 
I mean, I was off for three months and the organisation continued. Um, that, that's what you want from any team that works together. The personal boardroom idea is one, one we've played with a little before and I'd love to come back to. So I'm, I'm really glad you've raised that again. But I'm really also now loving the idea of a subs bench. I wonder how much attention leaders and developing leaders pay to that. What's the, what's the future in terms of leadership skills for you, Lisa? Where do you feel that there is still skill for you leadership-wise to develop? And how are you intending to go about doing that? There's always skills, whether they're leadership or not leadership. There's always skills to be developed. Um, I've just been really fortunate to attend Harvard Business School for a week on a women's forum, which had 50 global leaders from different sectors. What I learned was actually the skills are core but the environment is the difference is understanding the environment. So in terms of learning, that was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Um, and the, the number of academics who, who are published who, who did the, the learning, which was just absolutely fantastic. In terms of future, I mean, I'm constantly learning. I, I get frustrated. I don't know enough. And then I have to remember you can't know everything. Um, but in terms of my, my leadership journey, the next phase for me is, is to maybe move from uh, skill sets of delivery. I love delivery. I love action. And I love taking people with me. And actually, you know, the latter part of my career may well be more of an NED type role. So chairing more rather than necessarily delivery. So I'm conscious in the chairing roles I've had that you're not hands on. Mm-hmm. That'll be the next thing. But one of the things I've just agreed to do because I couldn't say no. My daughter just got into Northampton School for Girls. The head teacher said, would I consider being a governor? And of course, I couldn't say no. So I said yes. And then they needed a vice chair. So I said yes. So my learning at the moment is reading reams and reams of information. And I've told you I can't read very well. So that thankfully they do podcasts as well um, around being a governor. Um, because I think it's important that, again, I it's a long time since I was at school. It's a long time since I've spent time around young people other than my daughters. And it's really important I see, feel, understand and listen to those individuals because it will obviously enforce my views if we're looking at young people policy here at the Alliance, etc. I'm also a governor and such an important and, and rewarding role. Yeah, completely. So in the spirit of letting you go, because we've had you for a long time and you have shared so much wisdom and insight, Lisa, it's been a joy talking to you. But we do always ask one final question, which is around resource. And we've just talked about learning. Yeah. If you were to recommend, it could be a book, podcast, something to watch, listen to, anything. What would you recommend that our leaders listening in place a bit of their energy and time with? So the thing that's had the most impact on me and I use day in, day out is Dr. Zeller King and the personal boardroom that I mentioned. It's a little pack of cards or you can do it online. You will never know everything and you're not on your own. And personal boardroom is that subs bench of real technical experts that are there to lift you or pull you down or challenge you at whichever point you need that. Um, and if, if, if some of your listeners look at it, they'll identify some people in the different categories. They won't call them a personal boardroom, but I guarantee, Lizzie, that you've got somebody that when you're wobbling a bit, you would go to for courage or an anchor. Or if, if you're needing the next job, you'll have a connector that might link you to the next job and, and give you some, some, you know, some heads up that these roles are coming up. So for me, that would be the, the one thing. It's a very simple tool that's helped me massively. And I say I use it a lot. Well, along with a whole lot more, we will put a link to that in the notes for this podcast. Lisa, thank you for your time, for your energy, for your wisdom, your insight. My goodness, you have shared so much. I've loved it. Thank you so much. 
Thank you, Lizzie. It's been a pleasure. Not too painful, which is good. <laughs> That's always great to hear. <laughs> Before we go, a reminder that our sister podcast, Towards Leadership, is where we chew over some of what we've heard in a bit more detail. And there's so much that we've heard from Lisa today. That's where you'll also find more resources to read, watch and listen to, as well as tools, techniques, reflective exercises and thinking to support and challenge you as a leader. Please do hit follow wherever you've downloaded this podcast to ensure that you don't miss out on all of that. This is Leadership Letters, the podcast reflecting on and discussing all things leadership. See you soon.